Let us go to John chapter 11. We've been dealing with the raising of Lazarus. And I got a little bit of feedback last week because I kind of already told what was going to happen because we were all setting up the story. Um, but, I mean, if you've been in church for a while, you, you know what's going to happen, right? We know Lazarus is going to raise, so I'm not spoiling anything. Um, but I wanted to just kind of catch us up from last week. So last week, we kind of set the stage for everything that's about to happen this week. And I know Rick said we were going to try and finish this week. I feel like that might be wishful thinking, um, but that's all right. We'll try and do the best we can. I did want to make sure that we're keeping it to a reasonable time for our nursery workers and our children's uh, classes. But um, last week we looked at kind of the setup of everything. We had Lazarus who had been sick, and Jesus is somewhere away, probably over across the Jordan River, away from Jerusalem and Judea. Um, and so messengers are sent to tell Jesus that Lazarus is sick. And they actually don't even mention his name. They just say, the one you love is sick. Uh, there's no command or no request from Mary and Martha. They just are almost kind of sending this note to say, hey, here's some information for you. But I think behind that is definitely maybe an expectation or a hope that as soon as Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, because Jesus loves Lazarus, he will then drop whatever he's doing and rush back to rescue them and heal Lazarus and everything can be back to normal. As we know from last week, that's not how it played out. So this message is sent, and as we indicated by the timeline, before the messengers are even to Jesus, Lazarus has probably deceased. And so, you know, Mary and Martha are probably already despondent because shortly after they send this messengers, Lazarus is dead, and, and what was the point? And we mentioned the confusion probably because when, when the messengers get to Jesus, Jesus says, well, this isn't, this isn't to his death, this is to the glory of God. And so the expectation might be that Jesus is going to heal him kind of, you know, like he did with that ruler's daughter or that, or that ruler's servant, I mean, where... Uh, Jesus just kind of spoke the word, and yeah, that person was healed. And so the messengers rush back, and somewhere, probably when they get back, they find out uh, they're probably here expecting news that Lazarus has been healed, and everything's going great, and they're going to celebrate. Instead, they're met with the fact that Lazarus is already dead and buried. Mary and Martha, maybe looking to see Jesus, don't see him with the messengers. I'm sure their heart sinks even further. Even if Christ wasn't there to, to heal Lazarus, maybe he would at least be there to comfort them. Yet Jesus stays two more days where he is at before he decides, now we're going to go and visit Judea. And so Jesus now, as we're getting ready to pick up the, the lesson here, Jesus is now on his way to Bethany. Mary and Martha are mourning. Some of the people from Jerusalem have come out to the little town of Bethany to help comfort them. This was traditional uh, in Jewish custom. It was not uh, unusual. In fact, it was expected that you would have uh, hired mourners. You would pay these people, and that was their profession, was to come and, and weep and wail at the funeral. Family members would gather, and there would be a, a week solid time that we were, they were there comforting. And then beyond that, there was a 30-day mourning period. So this is all taking place as Jesus begins to approach Bethany. And just to remind us last week, before we dig in here, some of the lessons that we picked up. We saw, first of all, that Lazarus here um, is indeed suffering, we learn that just because we have a relationship with Christ and because he loves us, that does not preclude suffering in our lives. In fact, suffering is an expected thing for the Christian. Persecution is something that we should anticipate, not that we should uh, even try to you know, say is wrong. There's a lot of false theology out there that teaches that any sort of health issues or any sort of financial problems are a failure on our part and not part of God's design. When scripturally we see that this is God's plan for his people, that we suffer as he suffered 
And as that we are, are grown into the likeness of Christ and th- that God uses those means of trials and tribulations and suffering to work for us that sanctification that is necessary. And so we reject that false theology that says that Christians should not experience suffering or that it's somehow a, a lack of faith or a lack of, of following God that brings about sickness or death or poverty. We also saw that in their appeal to Christ, their appeal was first and foremost based on his love for Lazarus, not on Lazarus's love for Christ. And while I'm sure Lazarus loved Jesus very much, any love that Lazarus could have offered Jesus and could have said, hey, I've loved you this much, therefore you should do this for me, was so small and so minuscule, it wasn't even mentioned, worth mentioning. Because the love that Christ had for Lazarus was so much greater and, frankly, undeserved. No matter what Lazarus had done, it could not in any way earn the love of Christ. But Christ did love Lazarus, and he loved him so much, I hope we'll see this, he loved him so much, and he loved his sisters and those who came to mourn so much that he was willing for Lazarus to taste death so that those around's faith could be strengthened and they could see his glory and his deity and be encouraged by it. And so now we pick up the story. Christ here, as we approach this, is shining out amongst all the characters so far. Over all of the disciples who are worried that Jesus is going to die, the messengers who are probably confused, the sisters who are distraught, and the witnesses who are, who are trying to comfort. Over all of this, Christ shines as a loving, patient, compassionate and soon to be revealed, powerful Son of God. Let's pick up the reading here in John eleven, seventeen. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Father, as we get ready to just contemplate and and to take in all that you have for us. I pray that it would be impactful, Lord, not because I have anything of my own, original or uh, especially effective to say, Lord, it's your word that has power. So I pray that uh, you would speak to your people through your word. Uh, Use me in what way you can, Lord, to communicate that. And I pray most of all that your son would be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name. So here, and we touched on this a little bit last week, so we'll go fast through this section. But again, Jesus is approaching Bethany, and and somehow word has reached Martha that Jesus is getting close. And so being the active person, as we've seen before, Mary and Martha in the previous situation when Jesus was at their house for dinner, Martha was always the active one going out and getting the meal prepared while Mary was sitting there and, and listening to Christ. Martha, true to her character, is still the active one. She's the one taking some sort of activity. And so she hears Jesus is coming, and she rushes out while Mary stays in the home, stays mourning, stays 
uh, you know, weeping over Lazarus. And Martha rushes out, and I don't know everything that's going through her mind. I mean, we hear her say this, and there's different ways we could approach what she's saying. Um, I tend to try and hopefully err on the side of, of being kind, uh, that when she comes to Jesus, she's not leveling an accusation as much as expressing a wish that things had been different. I'm sure we can all relate to that. Many of us, I'm sure, have found ourselves in situations where you don't blame God, but we sure wish things were different. And we wonder, why did this happen? And if, if only things had gone differently. And that's, I think, how she's expressing it here. If Jesus had been there, this wouldn't have happened. And now she's gone through four days of mourning and sadness and sorrow and waiting for Jesus to show up and wondering, where is he in all of this mess? Why isn't he here yet? Why hasn't he shown up to comfort me? And when she finally hears he's come, she rushes out. Why weren't you here? Not again an accusation, just I think an expression of just her sadness. One I think we can very much relate to. Now it's been four days. That's a long time. Now, the significance of the four days, I've seen commentators try to try to build this up, and frankly, in my own research, uh, I haven't really found much to substantiate it. So, you know, there's there's some mention by commentators that there was a superstition among uh, Jewish people that, you know, after someone deceased, their soul hung around the body for three days, and then as the body began to decompose, uh, it would eventually just leave that body. But that's, frankly, that's a branch of Judaism that I don't think most Pharisees would have espoused. It was a little bit of a mysticism that was in Judaism, so I don't think that would have been the prevalent thought. But if that is a point that's being driven home, that Lazarus is good and dead, he's good and dead. He's been four days. I mean, if anybody's ever had to deal with uh, any sort of, of loss, I'm sure some morticians could tell us just how quickly the body begins to uh, decompose four days, things would not be looking very good. And Jewish people didn't embalm so much there, you know, like the, the Egyptians would take and mummify people and all that sort of thing. The Jewish people would just simply wrap them up, throw some spices on there to cover up the smell. And then typical burial was in some sort of cave where there would be ledges kind of carved out and they would set the body on there and just allow it to decompose. And so, you know, a tomb was not a pleasant place. It wasn't kind of sealed up or, or anything like that other than the tomb that was in front of it. So a lot of times when we think of, of ancient burials, for some reason, at least in my mind, I always think of Egyptian-style stuff where you've got a sarcophagus and everything's all sealed up so you could be in the room and maybe not even notice. It's not the way a Jewish tomb would have been. It would have been all sorts of different ledges maybe over time in a family with various bodies and states of decomposition and not some very pleasant smells. And so this is the state where he's at. Suffice it to say, Lazarus is beyond any sort of scientific explanation of him having a coma or him having swooned or him having fainted. He's now to the point where it's sufficiently established. He's dead. and His body is beginning to show those effects. So there she is, and she makes this statement. She follows it up very interestingly with a, a subtle sliver of hope. If you, wouldn't, if you had been here, you wouldn't have died. But I also know that if you ask anything of God, he'll give it to you. Hint, hint, maybe there's something you can do to fix this still. But we also see that her faith will waver. So even though she maybe thinks that it's possible, because certainly the stories of other resurrections that Christ has performed, I'm sure, have circulated. And so maybe it's possible something would happen, but she doesn't want to make the demand. She doesn't want to get her hopes up too much. And so she simply makes this passing statement. Jesus kind of pushing her faith a little bit, 
doesn't just say, hey, don't worry, I got this. We're just going to head to the tomb and I'm going to raise him. It'll be all right. Again, something many of us experiencing trials would love to hear in the midst of the trial. Hey, don't worry, I got this. It'll be okay. Just, you know, give it a couple weeks, give it a month, and everything will be back to normal. Boy, would we love for God to do that for us in the midst of our trials. But it's more important that Martha's faith be strengthened than that she experienced that immediate relief. And so he pushes back a little bit. He says, well, Lazarus will raise again. Couldn't you have just said today, Jesus? Nope, just he will raise again. And Martha, again, maybe not willing to, to let herself hope, gets like most of us, gets super spiritual. Well, I know that, that suffering is a part of life and things will happen. And it will all work out in the end. That's kind of her answer. Well, I know, of course, that he'll raise in the last day. It'll be all right when everything's all said and done and and the end of the world has come. Yes, we believe way back in the future that everything will turn out okay, right? We believe that as Christians today. Hey, you know, the world's going through a tough time. I'm suffering, and we know that eventually all things will work out. It'll be okay in the end. And there's a solace to that, yes. But it's easy to say without really believing. We can say all these things because it's so future. We're not tested. We're not really having to place our faith in that thing, are we? So Jesus is going to bring this to reality. He's going to show her faulty thinking and her faulty faith, even though it is in him, as we see her great confession, it's almost as if She's looking to a future thing rather than accepting that Jesus is there here and now. And he can work today in her life. And so she says, yeah, I know at the last day he will raise up. Jesus, if I were to paraphrase this, this is Jared's interpretation. Um. Who do you think is going to raise the dead up at the end of the world? If it's easy for you to believe that the dead will raise at the end of the world, do you think it would be too hard for me to raise up somebody who's dead in an hour? In the next few minutes? Again, Jared's interpretation, like, who do you think you're talking to? If you have so much faith in somebody who will raise the dead at the end of the world, hey, that's me. I'm the one who's going to do that. And I will show you my power here and now so that you know if I can do it now, I can do it then. Because you aren't just talking to anyone. You are talking to the resurrection and the life. No death physical or spiritual, is beyond his ability to restore life to. What a comfort that he's offering to Martha. He can raise the dead physically, and he can be counted on to raise the dead spiritually. What a great news for us, who though we live physically, Begin our life dead spiritually, desperate need of new life. And so he says here, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And then he kind of stacks on top of it, kind of the opposite statement, but making the same point. So if, you're, if you die, you're still going to live. And if you live, you will never die. He's making the same point. Essentially, again, he's demonstrating for her that though one may die physically, if they have life in Christ and they believe in him, though they may die physically, they will live eternally. And those who are living and believe in him, those who are physically living, may face physical death, but will not face spiritual death that second death that comes. And so he asks her, do you believe this? 
Do you actually believe I am the resurrection and the life? Now that we're at the point, again, at dinner time when he would stop over at the house, oh, yes, you're the Messiah that should come. But we don't have a whole lot of expectations. It'll all work out in the end. We've got some future thing. Now, in the midst of trials, do you actually believe? That is a blessing from God that he challenges us and our faith in those times of trial because it reveals where our hope actually is. Is it in some mental concept? We believe in a God that exists in some nebulous form? Or do we tangibly place our trust in Christ in the midst of tribulation? So God brings those tribulations to reveal our faith. And to put it in something that is real and has experience and has weight behind it. Instead of the nebulous spirituality that exists in so many other places. Because it's never been tested. Because it really doesn't require anything. Christ will here once and for all show his power over death. But he allows the tension to remain. And he draws from Martha this confession. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. She makes this wonderful confession. It's up there with what Peter confesses that, you know, who else should we go to? You're the one who has the words of life. We've got no other place to go. We believe that you are the Son of God. And Jesus has demonstrated time and time and again, obviously if we had more time, we could dig into the depths of John. The signs that he's revealing to show that Christ is the Son of God are all building on top of one another. But this is the culmination. This is the ultimate revelation. Jesus is who he says he is, and he has power not just over the elements, not just over our food or daily provision. He has power over life itself. So she makes this confession, and then she calls for her sister. She says, the teacher's here and is calling for you. Somewhere along this, while it's not recorded, the insinuation is is that after Martha makes this confession, Jesus says, well, go get your sister. Where's she at? Why don't you bring her here too? Christ's tenderness. He will not do the miracle without Mary there as well without her being comforted as well, without her faith being strengthened as well. And so he sends Martha to go bring Mary. Mary comes, and this is where the scene really gets gut-wrenching. But this is again where Christ shines out so wonderfully. The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she, Mary, in verse 29, heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Jesus has not yet come into the village. He's still outside of town, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. So he's somewhere outside of town. Mary's on her way. Now the people there see her run out, and they think she's running to the tomb of Lazarus to go cry there. So they follow him, or her. And again, we see Jesus drawing people. He's bringing them in. He could very easily have just walked Martha over to the tomb and said, we're done, and then walked with Lazarus into town. But what would have been missed if these people had not seen his glory there as he brings Lazarus to life? So he uses Martha to bring Mary, and he uses Mary to bring the rest of the crowd. He's bringing their actions into his kingdom work. Mary rushes to him, and even though she is the one who sat at his feet, and I'm sure still full of faith, she's shaken by what's happened. And just this this scene, she falls at his feet and says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She doesn't tag anything on after that, like her sister did. Just that broken sadness. Why weren't you here? If only you had been here. Just that 
weeping. And we see the mourners who are coming after her. How good is God? Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. What a comfort. No stoic, distant, kind of above it all. What's your guys' problem? Don't you know who I am? No condemnation of, like, what's all this crying about? Where's your faith? Compassion. Empathy. Christ is deeply moved. Now, that word deeply moved, it's from a Greek term. I will not attempt to pronounce it. I don't have any Greek training. So look it up for yourself if you so wish. But the term here that's used of that deeply moved is translated in other places sternly warned or scolded. And when I first saw this, I was a little bit taken aback because the deeply moved, I was thinking like, like how I would probably think. Aren't we glad that I am... Not Jesus, because he is so much greater and so much higher and so much more wonderful. But for me, I'm thinking, oh, he just kind of falls down there with her and and cries and, and weeps and just like, oh, this is so awful. And I'm sure there is a great deal of empathy, but there's a tinge of anger. It kind of caught me by surprise. This deeply moved, I mean, think about it. If you say, if somebody comes to you and they're, they're weeping because they've lost a brother, what would you think if somebody was kind of like scolding you, sternly warning you? What does this mean? How, how, is this, how, is this, how do we interpret this? I mean, clearly we see from his statements and even from his reaction, he's not scolding her. So how do we look at this? This term here, deeply moved, I think is a combination of two of these great emotions. We have, of course, the empathy that Jesus is feeling and the, the grief, I'm sure, that he sees, that tenderness that's there. But it's tinged with a mix of anger and indignation. I'm going to be careful here because we know that Christ exercised every emotion, and every action in perfectness. So if I ever... Stray a little too far, forgive me, I'll take it back. But somewhere in there is this tinge of indignation, this, this righteous anger, not, I think, directed at Mary or at the crowds, but I think at the situation itself. If I could put it in a, in a comparison, I was talking this out, and it's hard for me to find comparisons that can be effective but, you know, I think we've all experienced someone who's suffered a great deal, whether because of a disease or a disability. And we see the pain that they go through. And we see the anguish. And we see, you know, all the different struggles. Maybe there's medications and there's side effects and there's surgeries and there's recoveries. And then there's, uh, for those of you who've ever had the tragedy of watching a loved one who's slowly overcome by a disease where they eventually it takes their life, you might be able to understand a little bit of what I think is being expressed here. You feel so much sadness and so much empathy and so much sympathy for that person and what they're going through. You feel that tinge of anger at the disease and what it has done to them. Not at God, not at, but just at that illness. I hate such and such. I hate this disability. I hate this. If you're a parent who's ever dealt with a child who's maybe gone into the world, uh, or maybe they've experienced some addictions or things like that, and you see how maybe that addiction, alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be, has just slowly sapped their life away, and they're broken, and their mind isn't clear, and their body is disintegrating, and they're 
they're just drawn to this thing and they've become such a shell of themselves. And you, you love them, yes, but you hate the drugs, and the addiction, or you hate the disease that has so brought them low. I think there's a tinge of that righteous indignation as Christ looks at his creation and his people whom he loves and he sees what sin has wrought in his world. He longs to make it right. And he steals himself for the day when he will redeem all of creation from the effects of sin and death. And he will put it down. His righteous indignation moves him with compassion towards his people, but moves him also in anger against the sin that so devastates. Isn't that so good of God? That he would love you in the midst of your sin. And he sees how it has marred and corrupted you, and he remembers that we are dust. And in his hatred for sin and what it does, he gives his life to redeem his people. He calls us to holiness. How good is it that we have a high priest who has experienced those temptations, yet without sin. So we know when we go to him, he has compassion on us because he cares for us. Jesus here is moved in his spirit and he's greatly troubled. Where have you laid him? And then just 35, Jesus wept. Now the term there again, for Jesus wept, is not the same that Mary and Martha and the mourners. It's not the same term. It could be literally translated tears. Jesus had tears. So you see Mary and Martha and the crowd wailing and making all this loud noise and and maybe feeling the despair and overcome with it. Christ, not overcome, but shedding tears of compassion and empathy. He weeps with those who weep. He mourns with those who mourn. And all the while, Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do. Why is he crying? Because it's his people. Because he loves them. And because he loves them, he will act to display his glory. So, moving on to the scene. They bring him to the tomb. And there's that questioning even amongst the crowd. Oh, see how much he loved him. Could he have who opened the eyes of the blind kept Lazarus from dying? He says, yeah, he could have. But he didn't. Verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again. Same word, that mix of empathy and indignation comes to the tomb. And it was a cave and a stone was laid against it. Jesus says, take away the stone. And this is where Martha That great confession, now that it comes to the point, she wavers. Lord, by this time there's going to be an odor. He's been dead four days. She's not sure, can this really happen? Are you sure you want to do this, Jesus? There's that waver, that doubt. This is why Jesus has come, so that he can remove any future doubt. From Martha. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That what reassurance? And again, without condemnation. If it were me, by the time the disciples said, oh, let's go die with Jesus, and by the time... You know, everybody else has said, if you'd have been here, this wouldn't have happened. Everybody's doubting what his plan is, what his purpose is, what can he actually do. 
It's way too late for him to actually fix this problem. Yeah, if he'd have been here, the problem was manageable, but now the problem's too big. If I was Jesus, I'd be like, you know what? I've had it. I mean, I've traveled all this way. You guys keep saying you believe in me. You keep saying that I've done all these great things. And yet, even now, you still keep doubting. Fine. Keep your doubt. Or even I would have scolded outrightly and said, what's wrong with you people? Jesus, ever greater, ever perfect, simply says, can I tell you already who I am? Why are we still having this conversation? Why are you still doubting? Get that rock away from the tomb. I've got work to do. So they took the stone, rolled it away. Jesus lifted up his eyes and beautifully, this is not a request. doesn't need permission. This is a thank you. And this is more for the crowd than for anything else. So that they will know that Jesus is come from God. He offers this prayer of gratitude. Thank you for hearing me. Already going to happen. It's already been resolved. We already know the outcome. So just thank you for doing what we say we're going to do. He offers this prayer up. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus is preaching while he prays. I'm saying all this for their benefit, not because you and I need to have any sort of conversation. We know what's going to happen. I've already talked. You've already granted it. These people need to see my glory. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I imagine everybody for that few seconds is looking at Jesus, looking at the tomb, looking at Jesus, looking at the tomb. What's going to happen? Did it really make it work? Can he really do this thing? Has he taken a bridge too far? The tension that's there as they stare into that black hole of a tomb waiting to see if he is who he says he is. And then that silhouette appears against the darkness of the tomb. And Lazarus comes Walking out, still tied up, so it might have been a little comical. Maybe more of a hop than a walk. But there he is, fully restored. Unstained by the decomposition that his body would have experienced for that four days. Fully resurrected. And Jesus, ever practical, ever caring, loose his bonds, cut those linens off him, let him go. Even in that moment, while everybody's probably frozen in amazement, Jesus has to call their attention and be like, let's, let's help the guy out a little bit, right? He's back from the dead. Let's clean him up. Let's get these bonds off of him. And the crowd is just... Stunned. So, of course, from that day forward, all the Jews accept Jesus as their Savior and Messiah, and they usher in the kingdom of God because they cannot deny this great miracle, and they have seen firsthand the Son of God has power over death. Verse 45. Many, there's hope, many of the Jews, therefore, who 
had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the next verse, all the Pharisees and and chief priests came out and they got saved too, right? So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what shall we do for this man performs many signs? I mean, the answer is obvious. What should you do? I would follow the example of Mary and fall at his feet in worship. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Yeah, that's the point. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children of God who are to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And here we come back to it. Man is dead in trespasses and sins and will not see the glory of God unless God breaks forth in his heart, unless God reveals Christ to him. Can you believe their reaction to seeing somebody brought back from the dead who's been rotting for four days? Their reaction is, we can't let him keep doing this. We can't keep letting him make things better. We can't keep letting him uh, take away, uh, you know, all this death that's around us. We've got to kill him. Well, guys, one problem with your plan. If he can... He's already proved he controls life. So killing him's not going to solve a problem because he's not going to stay dead. Your logic is flawed again. This is the darkness of man. This is the, the wretchedness that we find ourselves in. Even with all the light and clear proof, Jesus is the Son of God. Mankind rejects him. Mankind disbelieves him. Mankind instead wants him dead rather than face the truth. What a sad commentary. But yet, how true it is even today. In fact, it was once true of all of us in this room. We were away from God. We were blind in our sin. We are at enmity with him, at war, rebels against his goodness. And we look at Christ and we say, how could anyone not love him? Oh, how we need a redeemer. Oh, how we need that light to open our eyes and to see him for who he is. In our natural state, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 tells us this. And our good deeds and intentions, they cannot save us because they are not ultimately good. Even at our best, we are rebels against his will. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. God did it. God broke in on your hardened, sinful heart and brought the light of Christ and showed you his glory. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places so in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is what John has been leading to. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. If you are here this morning and you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, lay down your arms, stop your rebellion, turn from your sin, and embrace Christ. This is why He came. This shows us all of the Son of God in His glory and in His perfections. He is compassionate. He is merciful. He is forgiving. He will save. He can save. He alone can save. He is the resurrection and the life. Whatever your faith is in aside from Christ will not bring you salvation. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. You think you're going to find your life here on this earth and you're going to put your trust in earthly things, in your own intelligence, in your own whatever, you will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the promise. If you would give your life to Christ, he can resurrect you spiritually now, physically in the end, and you can have eternal life. Christian, We see all that Christ has accomplished. This is a foreshadow of an even greater miracle. Yes, Jesus can raise others from the dead because he is the resurrection and the life. And though he will be crucified because he is the resurrection and the life, he himself will raise again and has done so. And because he lives, we too shall live. And this is the promise that we have. Christ is not insensitive to your struggles. Christ is not absent in your trials. Christ is the same today as he was there with Mary and Martha. Exercising compassion and empathy, but loving you enough to allow this trial to come so that you might see his glory and that your faith might be strengthened, would you give him praise and glory? Would you trust him? Do you believe this? If so, fall on his mercy. Trust in his goodness. This is who Christ is. Compassionate, caring, but capable of delivering us. First Corinthians, Paul summarizes that. And he tells us plainly in 15, in fact, Christ has been raised. After all the questions about the resurrection, Paul saying, hey, if this didn't really happen, our whole faith is vain. But the fact is, it did happen. It is true And Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the great promise. That our suffering is working to the greater glory of God and to our good. And that what he has done in the past, he can do now and he will do in the future. And this is our confidence. And so a God who weeps with those who weeps can also ultimately promise in Revelation that he will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There will be no more death and no more sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for those former things are passed away. He has done it before. We are evidence that he is doing it now. and We have confidence that he will continue to do it. So with that, 
Corinthians 15, that great chapter on resurrection and what it means for us, ends with this encouragement. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That is the promise of the resurrection. All who believe in him will find success. It is not in vain. That spurs us on to live holy lives here and to trust him with our souls in the future. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this great evidence of your son. Thank you for giving us a story that demonstrates so fully your power. Forgive us for fear. Forgive us for taking our eyes off of you and looking to the circumstances or the world around us, either in anxiety or even trusting in those things. Lord, we know that all those things will pass away, but your word will never pass away. Lord, we know that those who come to you, you will not cast out. And so we thank you for this great evidence of your resurrection power. Physical death can be overcome by you. Spiritual death is overcome by you. And so, Lord, we thank you for giving us life, for giving us your son. We thank you for the reassurances that we have and the comfort that we have in trials, that you have not left us to a nebulous faith, but that you use your word, your means, and even suffering to strengthen us in our faith. We give you glory for that. We pray that you would uphold us through these things. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's never come to know you as Savior, that they would see the power and the majesty and the love of Christ. And that they would fall at their feet in repentance and faith and turn to you. We thank you so much for your goodness to us. And we look forward to the great day we're with you forever. We pray that you'd help us to Be motivated now, knowing all that you have accomplished for us, that we would be lights and salt to this world around us, that we would proclaim the glory of God to our neighbors, to our relatives, that God, you would help us to live a life that is pleasing to you as a result of the work that you have done in us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' precious name.